every generation there is a chosen podcast. It alone will analyze the subtext, the allegory, and the clever Whedon-esque dialogue. It is Conversations with Dead People. and welcome to Conversations with Dead People. I'm your host, Paul Smith, and each week, give or take, I'm joined by guests from the worlds of fandom and academia, authors and educators, to discuss two to four episodes of Joss Whedon's critically acclaimed series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and its spin-off series, Angel. Uh, and talking with me tonight, uh, back for the first time, uh, back in the cemetery since, for the first time since our very premiere, is Nikki Stafford. Nikki, thank you so much for coming back. Thanks for having me. Uh, I've, I've, ever since you helped me kick off this crazy project, I've wanted to have you back. So I think maybe now that you're here, I'm just not going to let you get off the microphone. <laughs> I think we're just going to record the rest of the series. Awesome. Let's go. Session. All right. So, um, for any listeners who might not know, Nikki's the author of Bite Me, the unofficial guide to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, as well as a plethora of other uh, television guidebooks um, and the long suffering host of the great Buffy rewatch archive over on her <laughs> Nick at night blog, which uh, still active or not. Um, I mean, it's still there every once in a while. I'll see some new comment pop up, but it's the archive is right there on the front page. So you can jump into any episode you want to look at. Awesome. And uh, I will put a link in the show notes. I should just put a link. There should just be a permalink in the show notes for that, but I'll make sure and include a link this time around. Um, so uh, let's see. It's been a while since I've recorded. Let me see if I can remember where I left off. I believe uh, in the last episode, I mentioned that I would be going to the uh, the eighth biennial Slayage Conference on the Whedon Verses. And... Um, that I would be trying to record some material and that probably the next podcast you, the listeners here would be excerpts from that. Well, clearly not. <laughs> I did record, <laughs> I did record some stuff. There is some, uh, I had some talks with uh, Rhonda Wilcox about whether or not um, that's going to be made publicly available. I'm going to edit what I did record. I'm going to edit and I'm going to uh, present it to the Whedon studies association and let them listen to it. Maybe just for their archives. I don't know if I'm going to end up using any of that as part of this podcast yet. That's yet to, yet to be determined, but uh, because I promised some slayage content, and since uh, Nikki and I met for the first time <laughs> at Yay! this slayage conference, uh, I thought we could reminisce a little bit about our experiences there. So, uh, like I said, this was the eighth biennial. Uh, I have, I, my wife and I missed the last three. I, for some reason, I felt like we had been to almost all of them, but the last three in a row, <laughs> We missed. So this was our triumphant return. Um, but uh, Nikki, you've been to every one, haven't you? No, I was I was 
uh, invited to the very first one in 2004, which was in uh, Tennessee, Nashville. And I was seven months pregnant at the time, so I couldn't fly. So I didn't come to that one. 2006 was Georgia. I was not at that one either. And then I was invited back. They tried me again in 2008 for Arkansas. And that's where I first showed up and did the keynote. And I loved it so much that I have come back every year since. (laughs) It's fantastic. I absolutely love it. Yeah, I, uh, I'm not entirely sure how Pam and I have sort of wheedled our way into this organization. <laughs> Neither one of my, my wife uh, is one of the smartest people I know on the planet, and she's very educated, uh, but she's not an academic. And I am not one of the smartest people on the planet, and I am not very educated, and I'm absolutely <laughs> not an academic. But somehow we have managed to s- just stick our foot in the door and uh <laughs> and they have not asked us to leave yet so um i i love the atmosphere i love going to these things um i feel smart while i'm there and then when i leave i go through a process of readjustment where i'm like yeah maybe not why am i doing a podcast about this show nikki should be running this podcast <laughs> no but um <laughs> no, you- Awesome job with this. Uh, you know what? It's so funny. I made a comment to someone this time that this, I go through the same thing. So while I have a master's degree, I did not apply it to academia and went into publishing instead and writing. And every time I go there, I swear when I come home, I'm using bigger words and I'm <laughs> saying heteronormative a lot. And, and then over the week, it just disappears, goes back to like two syllable words <laughs> in regular <laughs> life and, you know, wipe your face and flush the toilet and back to being a mom. And, and, and it's just that one great week of being with these people who I love. I mean, the people I have met at Slay Edge, I count among many of my very dearest and closest friends, and I see many of them only at Slay Edge. And so I, I can't wait for it. I feel like my life is, how many months has it been since the last Slay Edge and how many months till the next one? <laughs> I, I tend to parse it out like that. Yeah. And I just love it. It's a welcoming atmosphere of smart, friendly people who are talking about a topic that I love. I mean, it just doesn't get any better than that. Agreed. So, uh, what was, what was your experience of this one? So this, I, I should have mentioned this, that, uh, this particular one, it took place, uh, the weekend of June 21st to the 24th. And it was at university of North Alabama in Florence, Alabama, just two hours away from where I am. So there's a little, uh, hint for the listeners <laughs> on why I've missed the last three. My wife and I have been to every one of them that has been in this area <laughs> and the ones that have required us to fly thousands of miles, we are spoiled and did not go to those. So. <laughs> yeah. So 2010 was Florida. Mm-hmm. You guys were at that one? Yes, we were. Yeah. Yes. And uh, 2012 was Vancouver. So there's the flying one. Yeah. 2014 was Sacramento, California. 2016 was the Euroslayage, we called it, in London, UK. And so this is the first time we've returned to the South since 2010. And uh, and what was really interesting, this was um, a more political slayage than I've had before, but <laughs> for all the right reasons. You know, like it was such great deep discussions. This is the first slayage um, that has happened since your current president right. <laughs> as president. So that was involved some discussions. Plus we're back in a very 
red state and mm-hmm. and for some people that was um, a little uncomfortable and yet it became part of the discussion and it made it so much richer for me like that that I love I'm Canadian so it was it was a, a really amazing discussions and, and thoughts and so many smart people uh, from that area were there and talking to us and they brought in people who've grown up in Alabama and it was abs- I just loved it so much um, but it's also the first um, slayage being held in the Me Too era and so we had that and of course there are the allegations um, with Joss Whedon that that became some of the the papers and the discussion as well and that was pretty much underlining a lot of it so it was just as you think oh my god we've been talking about this show for 20 years what more can we say suddenly there's so much more to say because it's all recontextualized and i loved it it was like coming at everything in a brand new way again yeah this uh i i feel like the phrase where do we go from here is brought up at virtually every single slayers yeah. conference but <laughs> this conference in particular really felt like that was kind of the question uh, of the conference yes. um there was a lot so uh i believe i mentioned on a previous podcast I'm, i apologize i can't remember but i was actually on i i'm not a presenter i just said i'm not an academic i didn't write a paper <laughs> but this is the first time that i have quote unquote actively participated in one of these slages because uh, a friend of the show Kay dale Koontz, my good friend Kay dale Koontz, uh, and her husband ensley f guffey okay. both of whom are regular guests on my other podcast gobbledy geek um invited me to join a roundtable discussion which at the time they called uh what what did she call it the i think the original title for it was feminist or I I can't remember. Anyways, it ended up being called art versus the artist. And it was supposed to be a round table discussion of how does the, you know, how does, how does the studies field proceed now in light of these allegations that have been brought against Joss Whedon? Well, that round table, I mean, it was, it was fun. It was nerve wracking as hell for me, but I'm glad that that round table, I'm glad that round table happened. But as it turned out, it felt like half of the rest of the conference was also that round table. <laughs> so I don't know. We were just a weird little comma. Yeah. We, we were like a little comma in the longer paragraph that was yeah. going on. Oh, um, absolutely. Every hallway, every bathroom, every, every, you know, it was this a discussion. It was what we were all talking about. And, and it was interesting where there has been a lot of like, you go to this conference and, for the most part, for all of these years since the original 2004, it is pro Joss Whedon people who love Joss Whedon. Not to say there have not been papers that criticize him because I've seen lots of those too. And because there's a lot of stuff you can certainly criticize. I do invite me. I, I did a lot of it there. Yeah. And in my angel book, One's Bitten, there's a lot of criticism in there as well as praise. But this is one where it was how do we contextualize this now and different people with different ideas and really trying to get together. And actually we discussed it. We didn't bite. We didn't scream. We, you know, there would no tables were overturned. It was having a real discussion about this in order to move forward. And it was so amazing because that discussion could be applied to so many things beyond just Whedon's work. See, as a, as a podcaster, whose regular show, uh, Gobbly Geek is all about my co-host and I typically disagreeing violently on just about everything we talk about. <laughs> the concept of flipping tables and arguing sounds like great podcasting to me, but I'm, <laughs> but I'm so thrilled that that did not happen at, at uh, Slayage. 
You know what? Next lay it, I'll flip a table for you. Okay, sweet. Just, <laughs> just to give it to you. Yes, for any reason, I'll just do it. Yeah. Awesome. So <laughs> were there any particular – there was way too much for us to discuss in detail. Um, oh one of the, the, the blessing and the curse of these conferences is that there are so many parallel presentations happening. Yes. You have to pick and choose what you get to watch. Um, and so I, there's a ton of stuff I wish I'd gotten to sit through that I didn't because I had made other choices. But – um, what were some of the highlights for you? Oh my gosh, there were so many. <laughs> You're right. It's it's so hard. Um, Ian Klein, uh, I believe, always gives some of the very best papers, and he gave one on the architecture of Wolfram and Hart in season five of Angel that was just stunning. Yes. And and he his I mean he's in graphic design, so I leaned over to the person beside me and said, "This is going to be the most amazing PowerPoint you've ever seen." And sure enough, and it, it was, was the most amazing PowerPoint anyone's ever seen. Like it was incredible. And he had blueprints of these homes in the 1950s. I mean, it was just amazing. And uh, and in the same session was Bronwyn Calvert, who again always gives fantastic papers, and and this was no exception. Um, there were. Uh, really interesting papers. There was one paper that um, is one of those things where the concept of the paper is going to stick with me for such a long time. Um, and he was talking about uh, the positioning of people. Did you see this one? Where is the positioning of people in rooms and how if they're in a like in a business setting? So if they're in a closed circle, they're all talking. Oh yeah. Uh yeah each other and they're not looking at the outside uh problems at all and was that, that was that michael gilbert it was michael gilbert yes and, yeah. and 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 that he said he was showing all these different positionings but he says if they form a u so that the front of the room is left open then it's a group of people looking outside at the problem and then you know of course he said and i i would love to have any more ideas and everyone's throwing their hands up and remembering remember the scene in angel when they're sitting in a circle and then everything goes wrong and another one where they're at a u and they're focusing in the front and they're all be able to fight together and it was so great and it's it's a way of i didn't notice that and then he points it out and now it's all you can see right and i love things like that uh, marcus recht uh does a lot of that sort of imagery um uh academics with, with this and he, there have been so many of his papers and he was presenting this one as well um where you go to his and you come out going oh my god i've never noticed that before and then his, it's, you, you watch it on every scene now <laughs> his presentation this time what I, I love marcus hit but his presentation Me this too. time was on gender images in in your eyes which <laughs> the the joke i don't i don't know if you saw me raise my hand after that in the Q and a, but the, the joke of that was he asked before he gave the presentation who here has seen in your eyes. I, and like, <laughs> like three people raised their hands because no one has seen that movie. And I was not one of them. And I was right. like, and afterwards I raised my hand and I was like, well, first of all, I just want to tell you halfway through your presentation, I realized I actually have seen that dang movie. <laughs> So that tells you how memorable that film was. Oh, my gosh. But, I didn't get to Marcus's, and I was uh, so upset. But instead, I saw Michael Starr's paper on uh -huh. In Your Eyes. And it was a similar thing where he opens with Who's Seen It? And a number of people put their hands up to the point where he was kind of shocked. You know? like, I think yeah. he was thinking he was going to be speaking to a room of people who would never seen it. And his was great. I mean, it was he's always so entertaining. But uh, his paper was particularly just so much fun. And I have not seen it. And even are you sure? Are you sure? I am sure. Yes, exactly. Here's the crazy thing, Paul. Is part way through, I'm like, I feel like I've seen this, <laughs> but I know I haven't. I just think it's stolen the idea from a lot of other movies. <laughs> you know? I mean, it, and, it is very sliding doors. 
Yeah, exactly. You know, and, and to me, I don't know if you've ever read the Nick Bantock books, Griffin and Sabine, it sounds like it's stealing that, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's where a guy gets a letter out of the blue from someone saying that she can see the painting that he's painting. And she has some suggestions for how he could change it. (laughs) And I'm like, wait a minute, I think he stole the idea. And that book came out like 25 years ago. So um, yeah, it was it was really interesting. But yeah, so there's my absolute favorite moment of the entire slayage was on, uh, was on Saturday. And they kept a two-hour slot open in the afternoon where they would have no sessions, no papers at all. And instead, they invited uh, four young people from the Shoals Diversity Center mm-hmm. to come and speak to us about what it's like growing up LGBTQ in Alabama. And it was unbelievable like i will never forget that the listening to these four young people tell the most heart-wrenching horrifying and hopeful stories where you're just like how do they have this much courage and they were so articulate and amazing and i just wanted to run up and hug everyone like they were just it was amazing. I was crying. I was going through Kleenex. And, and you're just thinking, how I would have never had that kind of courage. And here they did. And and I just thought, you know, for as much as we, and I said this on Facebook, for as much as we believe that the world we're living in right now is a dumpster fire, you look at those four people and you think, if that's the future, we're fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like they're going to be, we're all going to be fine if those people are fighting, you know, in the future. Well, I'm, I'm mortified to say that Pam and I did did not go to oh, that no. session because 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 we actually went back to the hotel and took a damn nap yeah oh <laughs> no I, I was so tired i totally don't oh <laughs> man so i that's embarrassing that i didn't yeah, go to but... that but yeah no i can certainly tell you more at another time but it they were just amazing and i loved that cynthia burkhead who is the academic who is now the president of the weed and study association but she was also the host of this so she works at at university of north alabama and that she in made this part of it simply because there was some pushback from mm-hmm. some slayage folks saying, really, Alabama? What? You know, like, why are we going there? Why are we going there instead of to a blue state? Why are we going to a state that is very backwards? And that was sort of how she kept getting. So she thought, then, you know what? I'm going to address this. I'm not going to pretend it's not happening. Let's address this. And she addressed it in the most beautiful way that she possibly could. It was so sensitive and handled so well. And it was just amazing. Damn it. <laughs> so... <laughs> I mean, that's I, I'm getting emotional just hearing you talk about it. So oh, gosh, I will so I will travel back in time and make sure uh, I, yes. did, I didn't need I did not sure. need that nap. I really didn't need it. I could have <laughs> gone to that. But anyways, um. Um, yeah, uh, way too many papers for me to discuss, uh, you know, in detail. But like some highlights for me. Um, let me see. I'm scrolling through my thing here. Well, the. Uh, the opening presentation, which we'll get to in a minute, um, the, oh, the very okay. opening presentation, uh, possibly the highlight of the entire thing for me. Um, but oh. some other papers I liked, Kale Keegan's Apocalypse and Everything After Queer Heroes at the End of the World. Oh, um, that was amazing. Was a, was a great presentation. Uh, Daryl Jordan gave one. So I kind of embarrassed myself here. I don't know if you were in the music panel. I was, and I loved Daryl Jordan's paper. <laughs> I, I loved his paper too. But again, I kind of embarrassed myself by, in the q and I I comment so his paper is called gender coded diegetic non-diegetic music a stake through the heart of gendered musical traits and one of the things he talked about was um you know what 
what genders music as either uh, masculine or feminine and whether it's, you know, loud and percussive or, you know, rising notes on strings and keys or whatever. And so I, I asked the question about, you know, how, how do we have this conversation about the very, very masculine opening theme song to Buffy the Vampire Slayer versus the very feminine uh, opening theme to Angel the Series. Um, And embarrassingly, someone pointed out that Steve Halfyard, um, who also uh, presented a paper in that panel, uh, had had previously discussed this subject. (laughs) So... (laughs) It's like, oops, I'm sorry. But anyways, I, I did love that paper. In that, again, in that same presentation, can you tell I'm a music fan? Uh, Jessica Houch gave a presentation on uh, the the Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Hamilton mashups that are all the craze right now. I um, loved that paper so much. I think I probably talked about that paper afterwards more than any other paper. Like, it was just awesome. <laughs> I'm a Hamilton super fan, so Me too. <laughs> I, I had to go to that. Yeah. Um, as far as the actual presentation, so I believe it was Saturday, the keynote speaker. Uh, uh, well, one of the keynote speakers on, I think, Saturday. No, I'm sorry, Sunday. Uh, it was the oh, final. Sunday, yes. There were two uh, keynotes on Sunday, yeah. Yeah, it was uh, Mary Ellen. And uh, yeah. say her last name for me, Iatropolis. That's how I would say it. Yeah. Okay. I feel I like I should know that. She, Sorry, Mary she's, Ellen, if we're saying you're wrong. <laughs> she's wonderful, and uh, I I absolutely need to get her on the podcast. She said that she would, and uh, I I may do a damn podcast just about this paper that she presented. But uh, so her keynote speech was the savior in the system interrogating the white savior complex in Joss Whedon's works, and it was uh, it was uncomfortable and, and, uh, maddening That's kind of paper. Uh, yeah. Oh. Uh, but also like super enlightening and, and yeah. thrilling and heartwarming. And, uh, she rounded out the whole thing by potentially annoying an awful lot of people, but winning my heart forever <laughs> by, uh, rethinking the, uh, uh, rethinking chosen, which is the Buffy, the vampire slayer series finale. And, <laughs> This is a spoiler podcast, so I'm not I'm not going to be coy, but I'll just say we'll get more into that once we get closer to the end of the series. <laughs> but there's something about Chosen that I have always been uncomfortable with, and apparently Mary Ellen was too. So God bless her. Oh yes. But anyways, the uh, the first presentation or the opening the opening keynote speech, which mm-hmm. I guess is not actually a keynote speech, but um, I am. The opening address, I guess, uh, is five by five, a memorial tribute to David Lavery. And uh, on this podcast, I've talked a lot about the Whedon Studies Association. uh, And I think I've mentioned Rhonda and David before. But for anyone who doesn't know, David Lavery is considered the father of uh, Whedon Studies. Uh, He was a professor at English, a professor of English at Middle Tennessee State University. And he was uh, he and Rhonda are the the patron saints of the Whedon Studies Association. And mm-hmm. um, sadly, he passed away in 2006 or 2016. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and that was that was after the last. It was slayage, just after correct? Euro Slayage yeah. and he hadn't yeah. been able to make it to Euro Slayage, So we didn't get to see him that year. Okay. And then he died suddenly at the end of August. Yeah. So that was uh, that was terrible. <laughs> and um <laughs> Um, very emotional, but the the five by five memorial tribute uh, at the top of the sh- 
top of this year's sledge was um, uh, also terrible. <laughs> it was terrible, but it was it was very very um, moving and yes. connective. And uh, David Lavery was an amazing human being. And uh, I, I'll say again for those who missed it before, I am not an academic. I have I had no business hanging out with him in a professional capacity, but I met him. Um, at every slayage that I attended, and he was always the most uh, approachable, open, like mm -hmm. friendly and inclusive human being I have ever met in my life. And he was an absolute yeah. treasure. So, yeah, yes, he was. And I, I also loved that. And uh, there were five people who gave tremendous papers about their experiences with David, and all five of them were so well-written, so beautiful, and really showed who David was. And then they opened it up to the audience, and some people jumped up and, you know, were very quick to uh, tell their stories. And there was some time left, and Rhonda got back up and said, anyone, anyone? And I was, like, right there. Like, I had flipped my shoes off. I was putting them back on, and I just couldn't stand up I was it was just I don't want to be last you know mm -hmm. like I don't want but I I really wanted to say something I wanted to give a tribute to David and uh because I had a very different experience with him not that it wasn't amazing but um I was his editor and so where everyone else was mentored by him or had him overseeing their stuff I was overseeing him to a certain extent and so um, it was a very different experience for the two of us, while at the same time, you know, I have so many of his books on my shelf. He's got my books on his. We were always like calling each other and about an idea. I, I, the Great Buffy Rewatch, I ran by him before I ran by anyone else. And, you know, and and he was just uh, it, to be honest, it the loss of David shows exactly what kind of group of people the Whedon Studies Association is, because I will never forget logging onto my computer that um, day at the end of August in 2016, and there was an email there from Rhonda, and the subject line said, a death in the family. Mm. And I opened it up, and she was telling all of us that he was gone. And I remember there couldn't have been a better subject line, a more fitting and appropriate subject line, because there was a death in the family and he was the father. And that is how so many of us felt about him. And it was devastating. And as the 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 news flew through the community and we were all crying and I mean it was just horrible. And they they did a beautiful funeral memorial service for him, but of course most of us couldn't get to Tennessee and so someone live Facebooked it and so here we all were two months after Slayage in 2016 all sitting around our computers around the world again together but for such a sad event but there we were together for him all crying and we didn't know who was all there but to come it, it was it was the first major loss that the organization has suffered and it was a gigantic one and i loved that they devoted the beginning of slayage to him it was so perfect he would have loved it <laughs> and i also it made it so much better that his wife joyce uh -huh. and his two daughters were there and i think it, it it was so much richer i had heard so much about joyce and the and the girls over the years from david and to finally meet them was so amazing and to have them there was so special it was uh 
he was an amazing person. I wish that I had known him better. I wish I had ever had the guts to <laughs> submit anything or, or <laughs> e even talk to him in, in a semi-professional manner, but just the, the opportunities that I had to hang out with him at Slayage or at the dinners afterwards. Um, I mean, that was very important. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, and so there has been, to the best of my knowledge, there has been no determination. There will be another slayage, correct? Yes. But there's been no determination. Us, <laughs> but we won't know where yet. They, right. Usually there's three proposals that come in every year. Right. So uh, there was one spot bandied about, but I'm not going to say it just because I don't know if it's actually going to happen. But my fingers are crossed that it does. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I hope. All right. You'll have to tell me off mic. I'm excited. Um, <laughs> exactly. And I'm going to do I'm going to do my best to convince my wife that we just need to go. We, neither one of us flies, but man, if it's over a large body of water, I don't think I can do it. But if we're talking someplace that I can get to within like the continental U S then, uh, I would love if it's to a, go. If it's a place I think it's going to be, then you can. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So. Fingers, fingers crossed. I feel, I feel bad that the only ones I've been to are the ones that I can drive to. Uh, anyways, so there will, there will be another one, uh, presumably in 2020. No, yeah. I, no idea where. Um, exactly. And maybe this podcast will still be going on in 2020. I don't know. <laughs> Depends on how much longer we talk about uh, Slayage tonight. All right. Um, so that was tremendous. I'm so happy that you and I finally got to meet. It was kind of funny because we met. Um, uh, we were actually at the uh, the welcoming the reception, reception yeah. uh, the day before this conference actually started. And I was hanging out with Dale and Ensley. <laughs> um, and like you and somebody else, I can't remember who, who was with you walked over and there was sort of a round of conversation at one point and you and I never said anything to each other. I, I always gravitate to the guppies. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, uh, I knew who you were, but I, I couldn't remember. I honestly couldn't remember if we'd spoken to each other face to face or not. And, uh, so you introduced yourself and I was like, yeah, I'm Paul. And you were like, Oh my God, Paul. <laughs> so <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yes. that was so much fun. Good times. Good and times. then we got to go and have giant pizzas. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> which, uh, which Matthew Pateman was angry. about. <laughs> so the, yeah. Read the size, man. <laughs> that like, was hilarious. He oh, apparently, so American food portions are just ridiculous. And I, I, thought that the world just knew that about us but uh poor poor matthew british man yes he, he, he ordered a pizza sure. and this this place only yeah. had one size pizza like any yeah. pizza you ordered was a 16 inch pizza 16 and i guess i guess he didn't really notice that so like he ordered himself a pizza and when they brought it he like flipped out his face <laughs> i took pictures i was just like that face is amazing i will immortalize this forever and use it as blackmail but no it was it was hilarious Little and i'm him. expecting him to write a, a at least a paper possibly a book maybe maybe he'll do do a class i don't know about uh my loss of taste and smell because that was uh he was sitting right next to me at dinner and that was the topic of conversation for a good 30 minutes when he found out that i <laughs> I something happened to me years ago and I cannot taste or smell really. Wow. And uh, he was fascinated by that. And just, so that's like all we talked about for at least a half hour. So amazing. Anyways. So that was uh slayage eight. Uh, looking forward to slayage nine. Um, yeah. 
and like I said there is recorded material uh, when I get around to editing it I'm gonna talk to Rhonda about what she would like done with it the uh, the David Lavery memorial was one of the things that I attempted to record we'll see how good that audio quality came out oh, oh that'd be amazing so anyways um, enough dilly-dallying let's get to the show uh, so before we actually start our discussion uh, I need to give the spoiler warning. Conversations with Dead People is it is not a typical rewatch and review podcast. We're going to be exploring the plots, characters, and themes of each episode in depth and within the context of the series as a whole. That means spoilers and lots of them. So I recommend if you haven't already watched Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the Series all the way through at least once, you press pause on this podcast now and go do that. We'll do our best to be entertaining either way, but you'll get so much more out of these discussions if you've actually seen the shows that we're discussing. So... With that taken care of, uh, Nikki, if you're ready, let's go to work. Woohoo! All right, so we're kicking off season three um, after after the you know uplifting, feel good season two finale. Happy, happy, happy! Yeah, we're back for a brand new season. So tonight we're going to be talking about the first three episodes: uh, 301 Anne, 302 Dead Man's Party, and 303 Faith, Hope, and Trick. Uh, so I'm going to jump to you first. Uh, what are your thoughts on these three episodes? Or do you have uh, thoughts on season three in general? Like, are you excited <laughs> to get to season three or are you dreading it? Oh my God. Of course I'm excited. Yeah. I always, I mean, I was watching the show live, so I watched it a little differently than a lot of people who have mainlined it uh, through DVD or, or Netflix. So for me, it was live. And as I've often said, and I'm pretty sure I wrote it and bite me as well, um, the summer between becoming part <laughs> two <laughs> and Anne is the long, to this day, the longest summer of my life because everything fell apart in becoming part two which is still in my top five episodes i mean that episode is just unbelievable i love everything about it um and then you want to what are they going to resolve and then so for these first three episodes you're wondering when is this going to come up when is this going to come you know and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and, and i remember just being on pins and needles every week like when are they going to bring up the whole thing where xander said kick his ass and it never happens it doesn't happen till way later you know and i mean but i remember that's all i wanted that you know and it doesn't happen but it's the slow burn to try to get Buffy back in. And then season three as a whole is amazing. And a lot of people still mark it as their favorite season of the entire series. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. I feel like I uh, was walking past a conversation that happened at Slage, maybe where I, where I, I briefly eavesdropped. It sounded like somebody was talking about how season three was their least favorite, which baffles me. Oh. <laughs> which baffles me. I don't know who that was. I'm not going to shame them here on the microphone, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I would say that I feel like the overwhelming majority of Buffy fans uh, list season three is certainly a high point of yeah. the series, possibly the high point of the no, series. Yeah, exactly. It's the ultimate season of high school, you know, mm -hmm. and so you've got the high school element, which Buffy's always considered that high school show, even though four of its seasons don't actually happen right. in high school. Um, and, but it's the ultimate, it's got the three or sorry, the two banned episodes that were taken off the air. So you couldn't actually see them. And, and one of them was a part two, <laughs> which 
which was so hard. Um, and then that turned into something hilarious in Canada because they actually aired it here, and and we knew, and the Americans didn't. So, um, but what it, was, it hang, was? Hang on, what was the second one? So Earshot right. was taken off completely, and then Graduation Day Part Two aired in Canada. We got see, we got Buffy on Mondays here, and you guys had it on Tuesdays. They aired it on Monday, and by Tuesday they decided, nope, too controversial, and pulled it. Interesting. <laughs> and so Joss Whedon was very upset, and he just went on to the Bronze message board and said to all of the Canadians who recorded it bootleg that puppy and i'll never forget those three words and i became one of the prime bootleggers <laughs> i only asked for postage and i shipped out probably 45 copies of that thing just recording them on my vcr my vcr oh, <laughs> olden days um yeah now earshot on the other hand did not and so we had that aired about a week before season four began and it was completely out of context and you know made zero sense but it was such a great episode you know and yeah. and but yeah so it's people are far luckier to get to see it in order but could you imagine watching graduation day part one and not getting part two now i was watching this live too so i must have gone through that experience but you I, must have yeah i just don't remember i don't it. i don't remember that that's messed up i, I, I clearly i clearly was traumatized and i've blacked it all out so <laughs> because they eventually aired it in Ju late july or something hmm. because i know it comes out but much later yeah yeah yeah, yeah. anyway back to the beginning we're at the end let's go <laughs> yeah uh, so how do you feel about Anne as a season opener? Um... Yeah, Anne is okay. It's, <laughs> it's certainly not my favorite season opener. Um, it's interesting to me, uh, and I always, for every time I think of Anne, I think of Buffy's hair. <laughs> like for some yeah. reason, instantly, that reddish hair with the blonde chunks, and it with was the such a flip. late 90s thing, right? That's I mean, so crazy. Oh. It was so weird. I had forgotten that. And it became like the haircut on the WB. They used it for that entire season <laughs> of all their shows, that reddish thing with the blonde chunks in it. And then it's never again. So it's funny because some of the, like, Cordy's hair or Willow's hair, you could totally see kids walking around with that now and you wouldn't think twice. But Buffy's hair is very 90s, <laughs> very late 90s. But anyway, hair aside, it's... An interesting episode, what it means to me now, in retrospect, is Anne is more of the precursor to Angel, the series. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and it has that dark, L.A., seedy underbelly. In fact, many of the street scenes they ended up using later in the opening credit sequence for the first season of Angel because that's the, that's the footage they had that they had yeah. filmed. So it becomes this, this is dark, this is seedy, this is adult. This is the adult world that Buffy's plunged into here. And when she goes back to Sunnydale, she gets to be back in high school, you know? And so, yeah, for me, it's the angel connection. Absolutely. And there's <laughs> there's another angel connection in Anne that, uh, I mean, obviously, so much of what I talk about on this damn podcast is the unintentional foreshadowing. <laughs> but... Yeah. Um, so the I don't think they're ever named. I don't remember them ever being named in this episode. But the slaver demons or whatever, Ken's people. Yes. Um that that is the scourge, right? From Yes. Okay. Yes, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, "Oh, yeah, exactly." Okay. I was thinking the same thing. 
So yeah, for listeners playing along at home, the demons <laughs> that the demons that we meet oh so briefly uh, in Anne um, play a much more pivotal role. I mean, they're only in one episode of Angel, but they play a much more pivotal role in events uh, in the first season of Angel. So not only does this episode sort of visually and kind of thematically foreshadow Angel's own series, um, but the bad guys actually pop up in that first season yeah. as well. Yeah. And um, <laughs> actually there's quite a few. Carlos Jacut or however mm-hmm. you say his name. I mean, he's the guy that starts out as the good guy helping the homeless here and then turns out to be nasty. He comes back as a different character on Angel being a good old guy who turns out to be the bad guy. And then he shows up on Firefly being the good old guy who turns out he's always the turncoat. That's right. <laughs> series and uh the girl who plays chanterelle slash lily slash Anne, she's back on angel as Anne, right and she's through the whole she even appears in the finale of angel so i mean she so there's lots i'd forgotten that i had forgotten yeah yeah Yeah. i'm pretty sure isn't she the one sort of loading the car with gun i think in that finale yeah yeah that sounds right yeah yeah working in that homeless shelter so So, yeah it's uh it's got lots of the precursor to angel is this one all right, so let's just letters. let's let's just jump to Angel then, since we're there. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, so we get the. I agree with you that Anne is just kind of an okay um, episode, but there is some stuff in it that I really like. I I love the Scooby Gang as the Slayer Squad. Like, oh my god, me too. I, I adore. So it is simply impossible to have too much Oz on my screen, oh. as far as I'm concerned. Like. I it's know, it's a tragedy that so he is hot. it's a tragedy he's not with the entire run of the series but damn it every second that he's on in frame oh. is a treasure and so oh. like the fact that this episode opens up with them trying to stake a vampire and Oz dramatically flipping the stake <laughs> to throw it and missing completely <laughs> not even coming close to the vampire oh. and the music it yeah. builds up builds up and then just stops as you hear doink against the, the grave is <laughs> That is one of my favorite things in that whole episode. That's so great. Um, uh, I cannot remember uh, what it's like after these three episodes, but in these three episodes we're talking about tonight, it certainly seems to be uh, setting up season three as the Slayer dream sequence season (laughs) because there's at least one. The the Slayer's sort of prophetic dreams have been – hinted at and we've seen them once or twice in the previous two seasons but in every one of these three episodes we get at least one Buffy sort of prophetic dream sequence yes and you know and it's it's really sort of fortuitous that you put all three of these together because when I was re-watching them I thought you know it feels like um, season premiere parts one two and three like it really uh-huh. feels like those three are so cohesive and go together as the opening together collectively the opening of season three because as you say the angel dream sequences that constantly happen that then culminates with the end of episode three mm-hmm. um you've got um buffy slowly trying to find her way back in and people not being truthful about the events of becoming part two and then being too truthful, but then always holding back that one little piece of information that Nikki really wants them to say and they're not going to say it. (laughs) But, but there's all of that coming together. And there's this idea of, 
of isolation versus being part of a group and then faith comes in and then that's all thrown off again. I mean, it's so cohesive, these three episodes. As much as they do seem a little disjointed, they all go together really well. And, uh, and there's lots of this repetition. You're right. It's, it's so well done, this opening. Yeah, there's a, there's a theme of like running away and um, yeah. finding a home. In fact, we'll, we'll get to it when we talk about Faith, Hope, and Trick. But, um, or actually the next two episodes, there's, there's a shot where Buffy is catching hell for uh, packing her leather, repacking. for yeah. repacking her leather bag. Um, and then in the next episode, she is giving Faith hell for, for packing, packing her, her looks bag. like the exact same leather bag. <laughs> Exactly. I thought the same thing. Yeah, you're right. But anyways. Yeah. Um, or we pack or you're doing a great job at packing. Like and, yeah. and both she and Willow respond with sarcasm in those scenes. You yeah. know, like they're really angry and sarcastic when they find the packing moments. Um yeah. Um so I cannot remember is it Julia Lee? Is that the actress that plays Lily? I think that's her name. Yes. Um yeah. Uh she I I didn't get a lot of sense of her. I didn't get a very good sense of her as Chanterelle. Like, I don't remember. She, no, she kind of no, was she, just there. Yeah. She was just kind of there and, um, and just sort of the annoying goth girl. Yeah. 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 But I, I like, and I honestly don't remember. I have a sense of what her sort of quote unquote arc is when she gets to Angel. But I feel like this episode is the one. Well, no, that's not true. I think Blood Money in Angel is yeah. kind of her episode. I was going to say this is the most sort of characterization we ever get from her, but that's not true. We get a lot more on Angel. Right. But... but this is probably the one that sparks her to be more serious about her life. Yeah. I, and uh, yeah. there's something about her. I really like her. I kind of wish, you know, that she'd had a little more screen time than just her three. Well, I guess four, since you reminded me, she pops up in the Angel finale yeah, as well. I'm pretty but... sure. I mean, I could be wrong on that one. I just no, I feel you... like she's the one at the homeless shelter. I think, um, I think you're probably end. right. I think you're probably right. Yeah. Um, plus she wins my heart forever because she was wearing, uh, a dent in the home of happiness t-shirt. Did, <laughs> did you catch that? No, I missed that completely. I don't know how I missed that. Yeah. From Rocky horror picture show. Like yeah. there, there are several scenes where she's got like a, a hoodie or whatever zipped up and you can just barely make out the word Denton. And I was like, no way that's not, that can't possibly be Denton, the home of happiness. And then later on you get to see the full shirt. And I was like, holy crap, how this is like probably the sixth time I've watched this episode. How have I never noticed that before? Yeah. Good catch. No, I didn't see that. Um, An awful lot of the footage that's used for the season three, like opening credits comes comes from this first episode. Especially that very final moment where where she's standing up slowly. I mean, that stays in that spot for years. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. point on. Actually, there's a lot of footage that's pulled from these three episodes, but there, yes. I, I was just surprised how much of it. Like, I, I, I can't remember really about season two, but season one, which granted that was a shorter season, and I feel like, yeah. correct me if I'm wrong, didn't they have that full season done before they went to air? They it? did, yeah. Okay. So they okay. had all filmed and ready so they could pull from any of those episodes. Right. Whereas this one, clearly they're like, okay, we've been on the air. This is our third season. We need a reimagining of that opening. So we need to have new stuff. Oh, we only have four episodes in the can. So we can only use those <laughs> ones right now. But what they do did do, did do do, uh, they, they went and they re-recorded the theme song because this is the first time that it comes in sort of that really 
more it's got a much heavier sound it's more right. guitar driven there's more bass and i still remember the opening of season three when that came on i was like whoa you know like i couldn't believe it, it was different <laughs> they changed the song and you know and i really liked it right off the bat i thought it was great but i know a lot of buffy fans at the time did not like it but i i really liked it uh what else do we get from this um buffy's line hey what's with all the sin that was a fun, fun little scene. <laughs> that's right I, for me, and I remember this happened a lot with the great Buffy rewatch is that I am in a, a, a weird spot where I wrote my, my first Buffy book came, the first edition of bite me was only the first two seasons and it came out in, uh, 1998. So it was a very early Buffy book. And so now, immortalized forever, <laughs> all my early thoughts about the show when I was 24. And so when I couldn't then, you know, talk about it like an adult who <laughs> had actually experienced stuff. So it's now I've, I'm stuck with those words out there. And then the, <laughs> the next edition came out in 2002, and it went up to season six. And then I got season seven in there right afterwards. But even then, all of those editions came out before I had children, before I became a mom. And I have over the years received criticism for the amount of number of times that I just say, oh, Joyce, shut up, you know, and she just choked me. <laughs> we, we talked a little bit about this uh, in the did. first episode, and we we're going to talk about it more because I, I, know. <laughs> I, I remember you saying, I'm a mom now and I have a little more sympathy for Joyce, but man, yeah. man, Dead Man's Party is rough. Oh. It's it goes rough. out the window in Dead Man's Party. I'm just like, Joy, I would not do that to my child. But, <laughs> but however, in the season three opener, I think I always had some sympathy for Joyce. Mm. I have a tremendous amount of sympathy for her now. In that moment when Giles comes to her house mm -hmm. and she opens the door quickly to get Buffy and he comes in and he says, don't blame yourself. And she says, I don't. I blame you. And I think... Yeah, blame him because he's an adult. He's a responsible adult who did who allowed this girl to lie to her mother as part of some ancient thing, you know. And I just thought you kept her mother out of the loop. The person who gave birth to her, the person who might be able to be there to help her and got her put her daughter in danger night after night so that Joyce didn't realize that her daughter could be walking to her death every time she walked out the door. Not that that would have helped matters, but for her to say that to Giles, and I remember going, oh, how could she say that to Giles? But now <laughs> I can see why she's, not that he, he's a bad guy, but just that maybe she, I understand her anger. I understand her frustration and anger at this supposedly responsible adult who did not, who allowed Buffy to deceive her parents like that. Yeah. Yeah, and that really rattled me this time. I was like, wow, I, I totally am with her on that. And I love Giles more than any character. So this is a big admission for me to make. I love Giles. He's flawless as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, when I understood. It's such a weird dynamic. Uh, so again, something I've mentioned before is how the one of the vaguely annoying sort of teen drama tropes that this series latched onto was the whole the parents can't be intimately involved with the secret lives of their teenagers. Exactly. Um, and on this show, that is that's quite a divide because the secret life of the teenagers is really super secret and big mm -hmm. and everything. And dangerous. Uh, and dangerous. So it's it is 
in hindsight, especially at about this point in the series is when you start to question what purpose really does it serve to keep her mother out of the loop? Like, like you can talk about how sort of nefarious the methodology of the Watchers Council is, and it absolutely is. It is, yeah. Um, but like, they they like why <laughs> didn't why didn't they go all in and just kidnap Buffy or kill her mother or whatever? Why even right. why even allow her to have a secret identity? <laughs> I don't know. It's yeah. just it's a little awkward. At a certain point in the series, the shift becomes. Uh, it just becomes difficult to swallow how for two seasons they, how they kept it secret and why they kept it. Secret. Right. It's worth, it's worth looking at to see if, um, if you look at all of the slayers, what's their, what's their parent status <laughs> when they become a slayer? Is that perhaps something to do with it? That if you did have to kill off their parents, well, there's only one <laughs> in mm -hmm. this case. Like, and in Faith's case, her mom was dead and her dad's out of the picture. The dads always seem to be out of the picture with the slayers. I wonder if, you know, that has anything to do with how the ancient curse grabs onto them. I don't know, but, yeah. but yeah, you're right. If they had just killed Joyce, <laughs> I mean, since they, they don't seem to have morals on any other level that the, the, the demon, come first it's interesting that it just is done this way yeah yeah poor Joyce <sighs> poor, poor Joyce alright well so unless <laughs> unless there's anything else in Anne unless there's anything else in Anne um I mean, I guess it's worth pointing out that Anne is her middle name. I don't know. Is that noteworthy yeah. that Anne's her middle yeah, name? Yeah, and she, she does make that comment to Lily at one point. But yeah, because of course we all know it from the gravestone, you know, right, that yeah. it's, it's right on it. But uh, But yeah, that is her middle name and why she's pulled that one. And interestingly, like it shares the same first two letters as Angel. Yeah. Um, and I always wondered if that had something to do with her choice. Oh, that was a weird thing that I noticed on this watch. Um, in the, so I, I feel like I should have more to say about the Scourge. These these weird uh, like Nazi demons with their SS inspired uniforms and jackboots <laughs> and all that stuff. But but anyways, more about that when we get to Angel. Um, but I noticed in the the factory or whatever the hell dimension factory which it's never explained what that factory is for i Ag know right again like... <laughs> again i think there's something i will talk about it when we get to the ninth episode of angel season one i'm telling you that's where this is all coming home <laughs> but um there's a scene uh when she's fighting it's when buffy like uh is is fighting all the demons and she jumps up onto like that elevated platform it's when she gets the i think it's called a hungamunga is the name of that weird sort of multi-bladed weapon that she has right uh there are several shots like upshots where you see a gigantic uh statue hanging on the wall behind her that I, you never really get a very good look at it but it looks very much like sort of an angel or a a, a crucifix a gigantic crucifix hanging up on the wall did you notice that? No, I think I'm always so distracted by how much this area looks like um, Madonna's Express Yourself video. <laughs> like the whole thing, even the lighting and the vats and the work. It's just so weird. Oh, man, if only, if only that song had been playing. Oh, yeah, exactly. Then they could all just choreograph that fight even yeah. <laughs> with some dance moves. Um, but yeah. I did not notice that. That's amazing. I know, that, that would be great if that was an angel. I know there. that was, um, I don't have this in the, in my notes, so I don't remember the exact location, but I believe the, I believe the location they were filming in was a former, um, like the Los Angeles Tribune or something. It was a former like newspaper 
oh, printing. Interesting. Uh, and so I believe there was some sort of risk involved. Like, I guess the ink that was used is uh, causes a reaction when it's exposed to water. And they had those big vats of water in one scene. So oh but anyways, I just I wonder, I don't know what the heck it would be, but I just wonder if that big sort of angelic statue that we get a glimpse of, if that was just part of the building. Because if mm -hmm. not, I just wonder what the purpose of it was. Like, what, right. what does that serve for these demons living in a hell dimension? Like, what is that figure supposed to be? Right. It also, like, it's funny. I don't I don't even know why I was thinking, um, like, on behalf of the demons. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of being ultra-focused on Buffy and these homeless kids who were working there for 100 years and then getting spit out in the street, I was sitting there thinking what would make you want to work in this place for, for thousands of years and just cracking whips and standing next to these vats of hot oil all day? I don't understand. What are you getting out of this? Like benefits, benefits, odd thing. health, health insurance. That's right. Dental, really good dental. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Where do they go at the end of the day? Uh, that raises, that raises another question. So Ken, uh, Carlos Jacket's character, Ken, um, what an interesting career path he must have because to hear him explain it, the, there's a time differential between whatever that hell dimension is and earth where a hundred years, he, you know, he says a hundred years pass here for every day on earth. Well, that raises for me, at least I'm a weirdo that thinks about stuff like, okay, so if he comes to earth and lives as this Ken guy trying to track down homeless teenagers or whatever, that means, I mean, does he have a family back home? I know. You know what? My brain did the same thing. I'm like, wait, aren't his guards always a hundred years uh, older every time he goes down there? Yeah. Yeah. And, it, and does he know any of these people? And is there, is there like a system of government in his home dimension that would be subject to administrative change over the centuries? When he's absent. Yeah. So he comes to earth to recruit slaves and he goes back one time and the entire paradigm has shifted. And now it's a... I don't know. That's... The slaves are in charge. I yeah. know. It's, it's so funny. My brain did the same thing, Paul. I was just like, um, <laughs> I don't understand how this works when he leaves. <laughs> yeah. That's hilarious. I never thought that before until this, this viewing of him. Man. <laughs> we're, we're getting cynical. It's because it's because I'll tell you, it's because this administration that I at least am living under feels like a freaking century. I true and i want to go to another dimension and spend yeah. a day and come back a hundred years and from it's now. gone yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> um all right so speaking of coming home let's move on to dead man's party uh, um so so Anne ends on a beautiful scene with, mm -hmm. with buffy coming home and this time joy there's a knock at the door and joy's answer this the door and it's not giles coming in to yeah to intrude it's actually Buffy and they share a, a beautiful hug and it's all very emotional and then we get dead man's party yeah so <laughs> so what, what happens in dead man's party I have to uh so full disclosure I just have to mention that uh, dead man's party is written by Marty Noxon I'm just mm -hmm. gonna put I'm just putting that out there this, this <laughs> is you know if you're playing um I don't know uh, bingo bingo thank you if you're playing bingo at home this is another marty noxon episode i've mentioned her name so but anyways uh what are your thoughts on dead man's party dead man's party is the one that makes my blood pressure go up um 
it is a very very upsetting episode and i know what they're trying with it mm -hmm. and even watching it this time and going okay okay you you know you've watched this episode 12 times you know what's going to happen i still just go oh my god sander shut up you know and you're one to talk and you know i just i always end up yelling at the television it doesn't matter what i'm always yelling at dander and and the funny thing is, a little bit of context this time, because I always somehow then erase this episode from my memory again. But mm -hmm. when I think of Xander, I, I try to forget these moments with him. And instead, I think of him on the cliff at the end of season six. That's how mm -hmm. I like to think of okay. him. Yeah. But no. So as I was tearfully, uh, pretending tearfully, uh, explaining to many people at Slay Edge, uh, the moment my daughter was born, they put her into my arms and I thought, I can't wait to watch the Muffy with you. This <laughs> 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 is like a major life goal. And I waited the requisite 13 years that I thought you're supposed to wait and yeah. started watching with her. This is a kid who is obsessed with Riverdale and, you know, all these sorts mm -hmm. of teen shows. And she made it to episode seven, Angel. And said, uh, you know what? This is just kind of boring. And I was like, oh. yeah, it was like Angel at the end of Becoming Part Two. It was like the sword just went straight through me and I got sucked into a hell dimension. And I said, no, 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 no. You know, and I started in on the, no, you got to get through season one and you haven't even gotten to Nightmares or Prophecy Girl. I just give it, no. And she says, honestly, mom, I hate Xander. And I said, what? You know, and of course, I don't know why I was so surprised, but I said, what do you mean? He's the heart of the group. And she uh -huh. goes, no, he's a dick. <laughs> yes, she listens to me talk apparently. And, uh, and I was like, what? You know, but see, in season one, and even watching these three episodes, I'm like, oh man, she's right. You know, but, but where there's this skeeziness there's this he's open about how he like even in the next episode when he's constantly saying to faith and were you naked in this story as well you know mm -hmm. like he's so obvious that he's just trying to get in everyone's pants and when i started watching the show i was in my mid-20s and i saw him as that guy that i went to school with at one time but he's gone now and you know he's just that dumb kid that you ended up sitting around in all the high school classes with and just wish he'd shut up my daughter is still in those classes right and she sees him as a predator and see i never saw him that way but she does and she thinks that he has no sense of his own failings and is so quick to point out everybody else's. And in this episode, that's exactly what he does. Well, I mean, your daughter is, your daughter's on point. The show has no sense of Xander's own failings. Yes, 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 absolutely. The, the paper that won the Mr. Pointy at this yeah. year's sledge addressed Xander and it was very well done when it talked about exactly how we've seen him. And in this we again i can't get past that in becoming part two he knew there was a mm -hmm. moment that he could have held it off but he put the fact that he had a big old crush on buffy and he could delete the the opposition and said kick his ass and put her through hell and put him literally in hell in doing that and made willow think that she was a failure i mean he just 
yeah. ruins everybody and never apologizes for it. And he's got the nerve to stand at this party. And every time someone tries to say, okay, let's take this down a bit. He's like, no, let's keep going. You know? And I'm just like, Oh my God. Like, and even invite me, I actually went back to see what I wrote and I railed about it then. <laughs> you know, clearly I've always been angry about this. I do believe they all yell at her. And I, again, I'm, I'm saying Joyce, is is you know someone I'm more sympathetic to, but not in this episode, not yeah. at all. And because I, if you have a problem with your child, you don't do it in front of a hundred people and humiliate her like that. You don't do that to her. And Xander doesn't care. And Willow is speaking from the heart, but even she comes off as as cruel and out of character for Willow even. And the only person, and this is where I went back to my earlier comment, who shows the kindness and respect and understanding for what Buffy's gone through is Giles. He, she, he's the only one yeah. who never confronts her, never talks down to her. He just has that moment where he hugs her and then walks into his kitchen to get the tea kettle and nearly falls against the cupboard in relief, like an utter yeah. relief that his slayer has come home and she's okay. And that's all that matters. And I understand why Joyce is that upset. Like I thought, but that was not the forum to do it. And Xander is awful. Cordelia is just kind of funny because she stumbles, you know, like, okay, I'm the slayer, you know, and does that really hilarious bit. Oz stays quiet and Cordelia stays quiet, but neither one of them have ever really been as close to Buffy and were right. as hurt by right. the rest of them. I understand that Xander wears his heart in his sleeve, but that was too much for me. So, so yeah, my, the overall experience of Dead Man's Party is I try to understand where all of these characters are coming from. Like, mm-hmm. um, as I've said before, and I'll say again, ad nauseum, I'm not the biggest fan of Buffy Summers herself, but, um, so like, you know, I'm fr- I would be, if I were Xander, I would be frustrated. If I were any of these characters, I would be frustrated that she disappeared like that. <clears throat> I mean, not only because, you know, she disappeared without telling anybody, but like she could have been dead. Like nobody knows. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, so I, I try to see everybody's side of this, but they're, they're all so like just aggressively uh, confrontational. And again, I often find myself in positions when I'm talking about these episodes to say they're supposed to be teenagers. <laughs> like they're supposed to be, yeah. uh, they're supposed to be like emotionally, uh, you know, incomplete uh, immature teenagers. So a lot of this is intentionally over the top, Absolutely. but Absolutely. there's also at a certain point, having watched the series all the way through, like at a certain point, you have to step back and say, this isn't just like a diegetic failing of these teenage characters to <laughs> sort of grasp the, com- the emotional complexity of what's going on. But the show at times, um, favors this sort of i mean the show is responsible the show is uh complicit in sort of mistreating buffy emotionally in situations 100 like percent. yeah because but, they're doing it almost like an opera they've got to take it so big and mm-hmm. bring it so much to the brink so that when it comes back we feel so much because it was so big that, they, that they've overcome this massive obstacle and so that's what they're doing there and i mean this isn't the only, it, it, you, uh, you know, it's funny because 
as you, you've, I've heard you often in the podcast say the Buffy is not your favorite character. <laughs> and yet the way she's written, she's written as someone that we align ourselves with because I've often maintained that the show is shown from her perspective right. primarily. Right. And so even though, you know, someone else might identify with Xander and I identify with Willow or, you know, whatever, like the people that we look at and go, yeah, I was that kid in high school or I was that one in high school or whatever. I mean, sure. I'm sure people identify with Cordy, but Buffy is the one that we see her home life all the time. We see everything. We go into her head. We see her dreams. We see everything about her. So we're aligned. And so when they turn on her, it hurts and it hurts personally because you're aligned with her and they do it again at the very end of the series in empty places and i remember just being so upset with that episode again and thinking oh my god they've done it again you know and because i can't help but keep thinking she's saved your lives so many times and you don't give her one inch you know to do anything wrong and that always bothers me that she's a kid too and she's able to make huge mistakes now this is a massive thing to just disappear (laughs) and but they never stop to think she's never done this to us before what could have gone wrong Mm -hmm. what i and she makes attempt after attempt after attempt throughout the episode to try and speak to them and they all i've got plans willow bails on her she just wants to go see her at this uh what is it, the espresso bar mm-hmm. and she wants to see them all at these different places and they back out on her and and then they're like you didn't even try to talk to us she's like what <laughs> and i felt the same way like yes she did but it's 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 so big and i think that's what it but the thing is it's gotten this rise out of us right which is exactly what they're going for (laughs) they're trying to make me this angry and it worked (laughs) so apparently uh the night after this episode originally aired i at the time i was not like really part of an online presence so i was not part of the buffy posting board or any of that but apparently joss whedon uh posted on the official board the night after its original airing and said I hope you all benefited from this story's message. Violence solves what talking won't. That's something we can all learn from, don't you think? Which, obviously, that's the typical Joss Whedon being flip or whatever. But it also, I don't know, in 2018, with a little bit of hindsight or whatever, with, with a new perspective, that is kind of an awkward message that this episode sends, don't you think? Yeah. And I feel like like I know... I. I was involved in the, in the online community at the time, and I remember this show engendering that kind of anger and upset among the fans. And he would always come on and say something flipped to deflate it. Mm-hmm. And so that sounds like him reacting to to those and saying, "Come on, guys, we're all good, ha 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 ha," and that's pretty much it. But um, yeah, but it's you know it's interesting though. At uh, what I forgot to mention that one of the things I really liked at Slage, and I went to this particular session because of the issue with my daughter, <laughs> it was uh, millennials, and that that was what the the session was called: millennials talking about Buffy and what it is they like and what it is that's rubbing them the wrong way. You know, having been watching it 20 years later and with a completely different perspective, and I wanted to go and listen and figure out if there was another way I could come at this to get my daughter to try again and just open up the conversation afterwards, you know, like if she doesn't like it, that's great, but let's talk about it. So, um, so has she never made it Pat? Like she still hasn't gone back. Yeah, She's, she's, hold, oh. 
she's stubborn. (laughs) She's like, I don't know. I think Buffy herself is just kind of crazy and really needs to get a life. And I'm like, excuse me, person who loves Cherry or Cheryl Blossom on Riverdale talking about crazy hair. But anyway. (laughs) That's beside the point. I'll get her back. I will. This is this is my new goal. But um, but listening to them saying there are things on the show that right now we kind of go, eh, you know, and mm-hmm. get uncomfortable about that we didn't at the time. And now watching Dead Man's Party was one of those episodes where she pulls out this Nigerian mask and she refers to it as primitive art. And I was just like, oh, and then she puts it on the wall. And of course, it's all magic and evil because it's from Nigeria. And you're just like, oh, and suddenly things are just rubbing you the wrong way. You know, Well, I I would say it's uh, it's magic and evil because it comes from her damn gallery and everything from her gallery is magic (laughs) and evil. You know, I can never understand what kind of gallery just lets you take it home and put it on your bedroom wall. Right. Right. You don't even have an ADT system in your house. Like, there's no alarm. Vampires come in day and night. I just don't understand why is she just bringing it home? Mm-hmm. That doesn't make sense. It's not a paperweight. Right. I mean, she'd probably use it as one, knowing her. But, um, but yeah, it was. You know, it. They're really, I think, with each generation. Um, to use the opening, but into every generation comes an awareness that the previous didn't have. And even in within our generation, 20 years passes, and we now see things that we didn't see before. And what we loved at one time, the next generation pushes against and says, nope, this isn't, this isn't good enough anymore, and here's why it's problematic. And I think that's something that now re-watching Buffy 20 years later is, is happening. Yeah. And it's even happening with me, you know. And so watching this episode, there were things that I mean, even when she and Joyce go in to talk to Snyder and and, and they're sitting there and he says, you know, something like hot dog on a stick is hiring and you'd look so cute in that hat. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, could you imagine a principal saying that to a girl now? Like mm-hmm. it just it couldn't happen. You couldn't. But then it was fun to watch it because he's evil and dumb and these two women, you know, but now you're just like, oh, my God, you'd be fired just for saying that, you know, like, and it's a very different time. Yeah. And then there's and then there's that hair. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Yes. Yeah, the hair. hair. Uh, so just a couple little uh, sort of tidbits I noticed I've got in my notes here. Uh, early in this episode, there's a shot where Joyce is. um She's grabbing her car keys and offering to drive Buffy to go see her friends. In that particular shot, there's a photograph, a framed photo on Joyce's uh, table, and it's a picture of two young children, uh, a boy and a girl. (gasps) Has anyone ever noticed that? And what the heck does that mean? Is it the kids from Gingerbread? I don't remember Gingerbread well enough to know. Because, or is it, it's Gingerbread, isn't that the one where Joyce starts that, that's the, see, that's the other episode where I will perpetually hate Joyce, but it's the one where she starts that movement, she calls it Moo, and I can't even remember what Moo stands for, Mothers something something, and it's basically because these two little children, they're trying to save them, but it turns out they're actually Hansel and Gretel, it's that episode, and it's the little boy and the little girl. Maybe I don't know. I look at that scene now and see if it's those little kids because she becomes so obsessed with this case. Yeah, 
Um, I, I genuinely don't remember that well enough that that even popped into my head. My thought was, okay, it's a, it's a picture of Buffy as a child, but, but who is the other kid? And then I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, is it both girls? Is that Dawn? But oh no, God. it's, I think it's, it's pretty clearly like a, an older boy. I mean, like oh. maybe 10 or 12 year old boy and a, and a seven or eight year old girl, but. Maybe she just bought the frame and hasn't taken that <laughs> maybe, picture. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what it was. Yeah. Um, well, Red's coming up. It's one of my favorite episodes. I love that one. But uh, so you'll have to see if it and, and compare the boy and the girl to that. Okay. All right. And then yeah. um, another example of unintentional uh, foreshadowing is Buffy. Uh, when Buffy first comes back to town and, and bumps into Xander, bumps in air quotes into Xander. She says, it's all fun and games till someone loses an eye. Right. I mean, come I know. On. I loved that line. Come that sounds on. like, oh my God, that's like good. <laughs> <laughs> and then my last thing is just going to be, Oh, I, okay. One more thing. Uh, this is a silly little bit of physical acting, just a, t a trivial detail of physical acting that I really appreciated. Uh, the scene when um, Buffy defeats the the demon and all the zombies disappear. Uh, you've got Giles and Cordelia are on the stairs with their ski yes. poles. With the ski poles, yeah. And the zombie that, that uh, so Cordelia is like poking at the zombie and the, the zombie vanishes and Cordelia loses her balance and almost right. falls down the stairs as if they're, I mean, clearly it's a special effect, but it looks so convincing as if something has just fallen away from in front of Cordelia. I don't know. It's in, it's in frame for a fraction of a second, but I was like, damn, that was really well done. That's so funny. I thought exactly the same thing. That's so weird because I was like, wow, the way she does that lunge mm -hmm. and then just holds on and then looks like, like around like a cat would if something suddenly disappeared, you know, like she, she can't figure out where it went. Yeah. And yeah, I thought that was amazing. Way better than the other, cause they show the other two scenes where they disappear and they're still standing there like, wait, what? Whereas <laughs> Cordelia does it really well. Yeah. And there's part of me too, that felt a little sorry for Pat at the end of this episode that the oh, right? poor woman is just kind of incinerated in the end. And I'm like, but she was really nice. And no one, no one really cares. <laughs> No she brought would... empanadas. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so the disappearing zombies raises my last question. And I'm just going to be that guy that asks stupid questions like, come on, just suspend your disbelief for a minute, you jerk. But <laughs> <laughs> so my question is going to be, did the did the mask? And I genuinely don't know. Maybe someone has talked about this. Did the mask raise all of the dead in Sunnydale or only a select few? Yeah, like were they were they within a certain radius right. of the mask, which is why the cat comes first? Right, maybe that's probably what it is. Because yeah. if it, if it's the latter, uh, like if it's only raised a select few, my question would be how did it how did it choose? And you're probably right; it probably is a proximity thing. Um, right. But my first thought at the end of this episode was, for for a moment, I was thinking it had raised all of the dead, and my thought was, now that the zombies have all vanished, does that mean there are literally no corpses buried anywhere in Sunnydale anymore. So I'm going to watch very carefully for the next episode where somebody rises from the grave. I'm like, hang on, hang on. <laughs> right. All the corpses were dissolved by the, the zombie demon. But anyways. Right. I, I do want to also mention when they're in the library and I just, I always laugh at that scene where Cordelia makes the comment about how she doesn't like Brie because it smells like Giles's cat. Yeah. <laughs> and he always goes, it's not, oh, whatever, you know, like that kind of thing. But I also thought it interesting 
that Oz is the one leaning right into the cage and the cat's just doing its normal like that and so it sound that they're making and it isn't going completely crazy not like why isn't it sensing that he's a werewolf like I would think that cat it would be going nuts because it would know that he's a werewolf but uh, maybe they just thought they'll just make it crazy I don't, dead, but... I don't know I just I just loved the fact that uh, Oz one of my favorite characters is a cat person I am a cat person me too. I've got the, three. <laughs> all, all the all the cat stuff made me really uncomfortable. I'm just gonna say it's difficult oh, for me to watch awful. animals uh, on film just because I I can't help but think about how that animal was treated on set. And I know. And how well, how did they get it to look so scuffy? Yeah, exactly. You know? and exactly. I do I do find it a little charming when Joyce does the little prayer for the mm-hmm. cat. You know, I mm-hmm. thought that was cute. I think I found it annoying before, but I thought it was kind of charming this time. But was that for the cat or was it for Buffy? Exactly, exactly, which mm. I pondered at the time as well. But uh, who knows? All right, so let's move into uh, the the final lap here, Faith, Hope, and Trick. So this is feels like this is kind of a big one. So what were your thoughts on this one? Yeah. Well, it's the beginning of Faith, so that's obviously yes. massive. And fans are – it's an exciting episode to come to now because we, we know her so well. Um uh, Eliza Dushku had had a ton of film and acting experience by this point, but she, uh, that was when she was very young. When she was like 12, she was doing that Arnold Schwarzenegger film, True Lies. Mm-hmm. And uh, then she she went back in, to high school, you know, and decided she was going to get her high school diploma. But when she comes back and, and gets the job on Buffy, she's actually playing her age. And she's the only young person on the show who is playing her age. She is actually 18 in these scenes and the rest of the cast is all in their 20s and so it's really interesting because she holds her own and looks like she's older than than a bunch of them and yet she's actually playing her age which is very rare on this show indeed um i think she's great right from the get-go um and of course i love her now more because of what we know faith to become but Mm -hmm. um but at the time of course again like i said with the earlier episode if we are aligned with buffy then we are going to see her as buffy puts it single white female in her and trying to take everything just as buffy has started to get this very tentative balance back in her life here comes faith to upend all of it but at the same time buffy's not giving her a lot like she's actually trying to be really nice and she's been through a lot she as we will find out she's had a horrible life compared to bees as she likes to call her but um but Buffy is just like stay away from my friends stay away from my boyfriend stay away from my mother stay away from my watch like that she's just kind of giving that vibe because she just needs to her life back and really didn't need faith right now um then faith has come at an inopportune time for her but that is obviously going to come back to bite her. There's a lot of twinning uh, and and mirroring that goes on between Buffy and Faith, obviously, over the course of not just this season, but like even future seasons. Oh, yeah. Um, but like the first uh, kind of parallel that I notice is we've just had two episodes. Like this is preceded by two episodes that featured Buffy um, running away from her problems, hiding from her past, trying to start a new life in an unfamiliar territory with, uh, with a bunch of strangers and realizing that, um, she basically, you know, was bringing her own hell with her or whatever. Right. And then finding her way back home, uh, and struggling to earn a place back in her own home with her own friends. And then we introduce Faith, who is basically Buffy from Anne. Like Faith is... Yeah. 
Faith is the character who's on the run. She's in a strange town. None of these people are actually her friends. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I, I'm, yeah. I'm positive that this stuff is discussed uh, in much, much more intelligent detail by countless other academics and slayage papers and all that stuff. But I'm one of my very favorite things in pop culture in fiction is the sort of mirroring and the parallels and, and that kind of stuff. And so it was a little, it was kind of predetermined that faith was going to become one of my favorite characters in the series. But mm-hmm. going back in this rewatch, I'm really sort of laser focused on that and finding um, the, I like, I, I noticed the fact that she's got the same damn <laughs> suitcase that Buffy yeah. had in the last episode. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's shocking that her name is actually faith. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, for all we know, maybe that really isn't her name and we never find it. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, that she, I mean, she lets on like everything is, you know, five by five until we get that fight. And it's right before she starts beating the crap out of that one vampire. She makes some comment to him like, my dead mother fights better than you. Right. And it's the one time where you're like, what did she say? You know, like the, the first time I saw this, I thought, what did she just say? And she drops things like that when she's angry but otherwise she acts super laid back and cool and everything's fine you know and and it's this it's the lie that's the problem and i think that's the one recurring theme throughout this season is it's the lie that becomes the problem and everyone even now when they're pretending uh that everything's on the up and up throughout this episode giles is trying to get buffy to explain what happened with akathala and she just keeps maintaining the lie, and he knows it's not true. And he knows it. she's never going to get to move forward in her life if she keeps maintaining this. And and, and Faith is doing the same thing. Yeah. Um, I, I have to mention the fact that, uh, well, actually, first I want to say, I want to ask if you noticed, the episode is called Faith, Hope, and Trick, and we meet those characters in reverse order. <laughs> We, yes, we, we, or, or actually just out of sequence. We meet Hope and then Trick and finally Faith. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, um, oh, first, yeah. The, there's some uh, barely repressed, um, like obsessive compulsive deep inside of me that is like, why would you not introduce Faith and then Hope and then Trick? Why would you do that? <laughs> exactly. But um, no, I have to mention the fact that uh, a few years ago there was a local... Um, science fiction and fantasy convention here in Birmingham, Alabama, where I live, uh, called Alabama Phoenix festival. And, uh, I ran the Whedon track of, uh, panels and presenters for that for a couple of years. And, nice. and one year, um, my co-host from gobbledygeek Arlo joined me, uh, and we were sitting on a panel. Uh, and I actually, I think maybe, I know Dale and Ensley both joined us for panels at that conference. I don't remember if it was this particular one, but anyways, we were sitting on a panel and we were talking about Buffy and uh, one of the organizers of the convention, uh, the actor, Jeremy Roberts, who plays khaki trousers or khaki yes. or whatever uh, is from, is from Birmingham, <laughs> Alabama. And he was at the, he was at the festival and they were like, you know, we've got this Buffy actor. Do you want him to sit on the panel with you? And we were like, yeah, absolutely. Sure. So we had Jeremy Roberts on a panel with us and I wish that I had something more interesting to say about our discussion with, uh, Jeremy Roberts, but, um, apparently he knew nothing about the show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I guess that's fair. It was only in its third season. Um, 
he was not interested in the show at all. Like, I don't remember the story of how he got, how he was cast, but he didn't care anything for it. I don't think he had any pleasant memories of the experience and all he wanted to, it was, it was a panel to discuss Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but all he wanted to talk about was Harry Potter. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> so anyways, he's never watched from like to this day, he's never watched an episode or to that day, I should say, he had never watched an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So he, I don't think he ever watched the episode wow. he was in. But. I keep running into Fab Philippa. He's from Toronto. Okay. Um, so he's Canadian like me. And and we seem to be sort of in the same book circles and, and friend circles, but he's always like one removed. And when I was at a book launch and he was there, it was just a few months ago, and I was this close to walking up going, it's not your fault. She was still mourning Angel. What? But if I can't come up and open with that line, I just can't talk to him. <laughs> but yeah, I keep seeing him all over the place. But uh, yeah, no, this is, it's, and, and of course, Mr. Trick. I mean, right. the, the problem, and this has been brought up countless times, but even by season two, the fans were like, are you going to allow an African-American character to live? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and as soon as he showed up, his first thing was commenting on how this is a very Caucasian town, you know, and he immediately was saying some of the stuff that fans had been muttering for, for some time. And, but the moment fans saw him, we're like, well, he's not wrong for this. Show. And, and, and it is a consistent and persistent problem with, with Buffy. And, uh, but I love trick. <laughs> I think he's oh, yeah. so great. I just love him. K Todd Freeman. He's great. I love him and Absolutely. all of his stuff, but Mr. Trick is a ton yeah. of fun. And it's so, so at one point he, uh, is talking to Kekistos about how they need to like set up shop in this town permanently. And he's talking about how this, this town, this very block, in fact, is wired for, what did he say, with uh, fiber optics, and we could bring in uh, a bunch of T-lines, uh, 2,500 megs per, and I don't know, he was going on about all this stuff, and I was like, was that? I, it, it surprises me, after making so many jokes over the course of this podcast about how out of date this show seems, like, or how, like how dated this show seems when he starts talking about fiber optic lines and, and T lines and 2,500 megs per and all that. I'm like, wow, this is 1998. I feel like this is earlier than all of that, but <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Um, I also want to point out that Mr. Trick, we meet Mr. Trick because he stops for a bite to eat literally at, ha- yep. at happy burger. And, happy burger. And I immediately had to pause the episode to look and see if it was Double Meat Palace? No. Because that's what I did. <laughs> no, no, I didn't check for Double Meat because I, re- I, remembered, I remembered Double Meat Palace. That's the name of actual Double Meat Palace, right? Yeah. Isn't it called Double Meat Palace? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what I couldn't remember, because Happy Burger has the cheery little like yeah. hamburger mascot, and I was like, oh my God, is this the same place from Angel where, where Wesley goes to get the prophecy from the burger oh, mascot? Yeah. It's what? not in oh. Angel in Angel season three episode fifteen loyalty we're introduced to Jolly Burger not Happy Burger oh. but Jolly Burger <laughs> so oh my God. they anyway. have a thesaurus <laughs> yes exactly I went and looked to see if it was double I paused it and went to see if it was Double Meat Palace but it was not because I wanted to see if it was like the same place it looked right. so similar but it had more of like a like a more of an aluminum exterior or a wooden exterior or something. It was very yellow. Right. <laughs> so I was like, nope, not the same place. But uh, I really thought it was. Okay. 
man. Um, fast food joint. Someone needs to do paper on the fast food joints. <laughs> <above. laughs> there, there are a bunch. There are a bunch. All the same names. <laughs> right. Um, I loved. Uh, well, they've got in in the bronze. The the band playing there is Darling Violetta, who mm-hmm. ends up being the band that records the the Angel theme song. So that's the same band. Um, up there with their cellos. I've actually seen them live. They put on quite a show. Awesome. <laughs> um, oh, there was something you were saying earlier. That, oh, right. As um, you were talking about the twinning of, of Buffy and Faith. And the one thing that I noticed is the very first time in the very first episode that Buffy goes to the bronze with Giles, she immediately figures out who the vampire is. Because he looks like DeBarge. Right. And in this one, she does exactly the same thing. So the first time we see Faith at the bronze, uh, the others layer at the bronze, and she's about to go out with one that she says that he's, or uh, someone else says that he looks like Casey and the Sunshine Band dancing because of all the disco weird moves yes. that he. And that's how she immediately pegs that he's a vampire. So it was the same methodology with the introduction of both slayers in the bronze. Still not using that uh, that super secret uh, Slayer sense, I guess. That, I know that Giles Only seems to think she Spike has. Only for Spike and Angel, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, lots of references to Buffy being an only child, uh, to Faith yeah. being her little sister, and all that stuff. So mm. I just have to ask, as I always do, and maybe. So I know I feel like this is getting a little more plausible now that we're into season three. My question is, how early in production was Joss uh, considering the whole Dawn option? Um, Mm. since season three, obviously season three, very clearly sets up Dawn, even though that Mm -hmm. card isn't played for quite a while, but, um, now that we're into season three, I have to ask since there are the references to the little sister and everything. Um, do are you aware if there was any thought that the show would kind of head in that direction at some point and this was intentional or is this just sort of thematic stuff that they pick up on later i don't know and i i I don't remember reading anything about this being an early thing he had figured out um i i felt like it was something he was starting to sort out in season four he now the other on the other hand he has often maintained that he saw this he knew i mean even though he wanted to go beyond season five he had the first five seasons pretty well imagined Mm -hmm. and that he knew it was where it was going to open he knew the arc it was going to take i'm not sure he knew that angel was going to leave um and he didn't know but then he wasn't also intending on spike coming back and he did so he was able to sort of take that spot and that he knew it was going to end with her the way she ends in season five and so that that was going to be an arc and at the time the reason he wasn't necessarily sure that it was going to be done in five seasons. But in the fifth season, when the WB basically said, we're, we're dumping the show. So he ha- now had to complete it. And it was only in after he had settled on completing season five that UPN stepped in and said, well, we'll take two more seasons. And now he had to draw it out for two more seasons after he'd already ended it sort of in the spot that he won. I'm glad that he drew it over two more seasons because – even though that is a sort of a perfect kind of ending, I also don't think it's a good ending. So, um, but anyway, um, that's a whole other discussion. <laughs> <laughs> so I wonder if he did have all of the ins and outs mapped that he already did know that was going to come at some point. And if so, then yeah, absolutely astute to be picking up on that because I think this is certainly 
I wondered the same thing because it's certainly the season where he starts now. See, in seasons one and two, he never knew if he was going to get another pickup. Right. By this point, he knew he 100% had five seasons. So in doing that, he could now start dropping those hints of things that are to come. And you're seeing all the Dawn stuff, and I totally agree. It's there. He, he, they weren't talking about you being an only child all the time in season two, and all of a sudden it's getting mentioned all the time. And also the other thing I'm noticing is Willow and Magic. And that yes. is becoming something that is recurrent in these three episodes for sure. Um, in the in the previous episode, uh, there Dead Man's Party, they're having a discussion about her magic and where did you first start doing that? And it's the first time she mentions that something has gone wrong in her spells. Mm -hmm. You know, she says something like all the power went out in our block or something like that. And so she mentions that in this episode, it's the first time Willow lies about her magic. And we never hear her do that before, but she says something like, well, did you do a spell? And she goes, um, or she pulls out the root and she says, this is a root that's good for nothing and puts it back in the thing, you know, yeah. and left on, like, I have never used that magic before, I, you know, but then in the very end, when Giles determines in front of Willow that her spell did in fact work, she suddenly stands up like, oh my God, and realizes she's more powerful. She's been thinking of herself as a failure for three months and that she actually succeeded. And the moment she knows that, she says, Giles, I can do this spell. And then he says, there is no spell. Yeah. But in that moment, she is like, I am far more powerful than I thought I was. Why was I tinkering around with the small stuff? I should have been moving on to the bigger stuff. And this is where we start seeing Willow realize what she's capable of. Which is... Uh, that's that's awesome uh and i can't remember if it was this episode or um i can't remember if it was faith hope and trick or dead man's party um where it might have been the end of dead man's party where she's talking about how you know i'm not a real witch that takes years or something mm -hmm. uh, and my thought when she said that line was well but does it really because in show <laughs> terms it takes kind of maybe a season a season <laughs> And by season four, you're all over the place. I mean, so season six is where she's truly falling apart. But by season four, she is powerful. Yeah. Like she really can do that stuff in season four. And it's also connecting with Tara. When you've got the two of them together, suddenly they become really powerful. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So yeah, um, I think that we're starting to see little hints of what's to come in, in the upcoming shows and seasons. So, yeah, this is a great three episodes for that, for sure. Yeah. Um. All right. So anything else besides faith being described as zesty? Um, <laughs> is there anything else in this? Um, Ugh. <laughs> um, <laughs> you don't like the zesty? zesty. Yeah. And the, and the gator wrangling. Um, oh, Lord. Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> but I, I think it's funny, but I mean, Sander... Come on. <laughs> anyway. Oh, hey, I do. I want to ask you, because uh, I just looked up to be sure. Uh, Eliza Dishku is from, uh, I, and I just forgot. Is it Maryland? No. Um, Massachusetts. Uh, right. So maybe maybe this is a Boston, or like maybe this is a New England accent I'm hearing. But I, I was going to say, since you're Canadian, um, I did not recall Eliza slash Faith having this sort of vaguely Canadian accent that I imagine I'm hearing here. Uh, I, uh, in this episode, I hear a boot about 20 times. <laughs> like, no way. Really? Every time. Like she I says the word about funny. several times and it always has that sort of what we Americans at least think of the cliche Canadian accent. It really sounds like yeah. a boot. 
We don't say a boot. <laughs> I know. It's, Let's it's, put it, that on the record. It's the American cliche. <laughs> yes, it, it it's more. And it, uh, how I met your mother is the is the show that really nailed it. It's more like a boat. I think is what people say. I say about is how I would say it. About okay. that doesn't sound like a boot to me, but but I I have I. So I wouldn't hear it. It's so funny. A, a Canadian accent I actually wouldn't pick up on. The, I was going to mention the accent because I thought this was the episode, but it's – I don't think this is the episode. No, I think it's when she actually gets an apartment. She Faith is from Boston, right. and she does mention that a few times. And it's an accent that comes and goes. <laughs> and it's the one thing that always sort of irked me. And there's going to be a scene – now, of course, you're going to notice it right away. But there's a scene that comes up when – Someone, I think it's Xander. Someone comes to see the apartment, and she says it's really Spartan. And <laughs> she doesn't say Spartan, oh, but it's man. the first time she says Spartan. And it was like such a Boston word that she uses. And then you never hear her say it like that in the rest of the. Nowhere else does she say, you know, I'm going to the bar. <laughs> well, <laughs> this is wicked piss out. Like she doesn't do anything <laughs> like that. But all of a sudden, she's like super Bostonian in this one sentence. This, so, this, uh, this show's use of accents is pretty spotting in the first place. <laughs> oh, God. So. But you mean like Angel? <laughs> That yeah. Irish accent, yeah. I just want to die. And, well, that. and whatever Kendra was doing, and yeah. Oh, Kendra. Poor Kendra. That Poor accent Kendra. was atrocious. Yeah. Oh, I forgot I'm, that one. I'm surprised yeah. that uh, Cordelia is the one that puts the whole Slayer thing together. <laughs> no. That, oh, I get it. Not the horny thing, because you, but. Uh, <laughs> that, yeah. uh, That's right. Yeah. That Kendra right. died, so now exactly. there's a new Slayer. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Um, I just have to say the whole uh, clad off friendship ring, as coincidences go, sort of yeah. strains credulity, I think, just a little yeah. bit, that poor, exactly. that poor Scott Hope would just decide to give Buffy a friendship ring and that it would be a clad off ring. But, right. Like, he can't even get her to go get a coffee with him. Why is he buying jewelry? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Like, come on, buddy. <laughs> so, so, of course, the episode ends with the big reveal that mm -hmm. Angel's not actually dead. Even though she keeps saying she killed her boyfriend, she didn't. She just sent him to hell for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, and he's back. So. Yeah. Yes, he's back. And in this, in that one scene where he drops, where I'm not sure that that's actually David Boreanaz when we see him from behind, his tattoo is gone. <laughs> oh, crap. I didn't even yeah. notice that. It's totally gone. Oh, but man. Don't worry and it's just like how could you forget when you've got a naked scene in there that you forgot the tattoo well you know but, it, it the the transition from hell dimension back to earth right? tattoo ink is a little slower yeah. so right. angel drops and then his tattoo follows oh my god that's totally after. what happened you're that's right what it was, it what was it sort was. of trans-dimensional laser surgery but then it reverses yeah yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> totally yeah how it works but yeah, so there's the big dun dun dun, you know, that moving into episode four. So that's why I think these three episodes go so well together. They've got a beginning, a middle, and an end, and it all basically everything that happens sparks the entire rest of the season. Even the the references to the mayor, which which Snyder is constantly making for some reason, all of a sudden, um, and he keeps referring to the mayor, but we don't see him, but we know he's coming. Oh, there was that great line at Dead Man's Party where Joyce is like, "This isn't over. If I have to, I'll go all the way to the mayor." And then she storms right. out, and he's like, "Hmm, wouldn't that be interesting?" <laughs> exactly. Oh my god, and he is hands down one of my favorite characters of all time on this show. I can't wait to see him. Absolutely. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you've mentioned the, the selection, like grouping these three episodes together a few times. I have to give credit where credit is due and I'm going to give him credit because in the future I may, I may toss blame at him as well. (laughs) But my, my co-host on Gobbly Geek, Arlo, uh, was originally going to be my co-host on this. He's the one that put together all the episode groupings. So nice. the brain behind putting these three episodes together to discuss, that I give all credit to Arlo. But that also means the next time that someone is like, why are we talking about these episodes together? I'll be like, oh, Arlo, it's his fault. <laughs> He's the one that came That's up right. with this list. Blame him. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So... <laughs> Anyways, um, unless there was anything else about all these, I'm just super happy that Faith is finally on board because she becomes one of my favorite characters. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. No. Yeah, no, these are great episodes. I mean, individually, they're just okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. they're great to spark the greatness that is coming. And, yes. and that's what that's what matters. All right. Well, Nikki, thank you so much for um, not only like hanging out with me in air quotes at uh, Slayage, but uh, coming, <laughs> coming back on the podcast to talk about Slayage and Buffy. Um, do you want to let the listeners at home know how they can track you down? Um, the best place is probably on Facebook. That's where I tend to hang out mostly. I'm sort of on Twitter, mm-hmm. <laughs> but but not often. Um, the blog is called Nick at Night. That's N-I-K at N-I-T-E. However, I, I have not updated it in forever, but that is where you can find the Buffy rewatch. And it went for an entire year, did all 144 episodes and talked about the Angel tie-ins. And it was so much fun to do. It's fantastic. And like I said, I'll uh, include a link to that in the show notes. And uh, I will also, again, provide a link, an Amazon link to Bite Me, the unofficial guide to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, for anyone who wants to click on that link and purchase that book. If I am still an Amazon associate, which I have no idea if I am, because <laughs> uh, I don't know if I've sold any books through this podcast, but at any rate, if I am clicking on that link that I provide, it'll take you to Amazon if you buy the book there. Um, Uh, It doesn't cost you anything extra to buy the book that way. It just means that a couple pennies are carved out of Amazon's uh, take and dropped into my virtual tip jar. So I would appreciate it. And I'm sure Nikki would appreciate it if you would click on that link and buy a copy of that book. Absolutely. Buy buy several. They make great gifts. Many, many, many copies. (laughs) So uh, anyways, Nick, thanks again for joining me. And thank you all at home for listening. You can find links to this and all of our past episodes at the website conswithdead.com, or you can subscribe to the show on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate us or write us a review. There are multiple Buffy podcasts out there. Shocking, but true. Uh, And so any kind words that you could spare would really help us stand out from the crowd. If you've got any questions for me or any of my guests, or if you'd like to share your thoughts on anything we've discussed, please join the conversation. You can drop us an email at conswithdead at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at what else? Cons with Dead. Or you can reach out to us uh, on the Facebook group, Conversations with Conversations with Dead People. I learned a new word. I had to use it everywhere. Uh, so next week, uh, Nikki is back. I, uh, I had a guest lined up and uh, scheduling a snafu meant that uh, she was not going to be able to join us. So Nikki has graciously agreed to return next week. Like I said, I'm not letting you off the mic. We're just going to keep going. All the, way, all the way through to the end. Gonna plow through season three. Yeah. So uh, so next week we're gonna be discussing uh, 304 Beauty and the Beasts, 305 Homecoming, and 306 Band Candy. 
we're both super excited for that one. <laughs> so uh, until then, Gur Arg, everybody. Gur Arg. Waiting for an invitation to arrive. Going to a party where no one's still alive. Waiting for an invitation to arrive. Going to a party where no one's still alive. I was struck by lightning. Man's